Ladies podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cap. Today on Plucky Ladies, I'm talking with Dr. Guadalupe Lozano. She is an associate research professor of mathematics and also the director of the Center for University Education and Scholarship. She's also the director of external relations and evaluation for the School of Mathematical Sciences and an advocate for Latinx students in STEM, especially those born in the US, which is one of the most underrepresented groups in STEM. Um, and I love that. So we're going to talk a bit about that today as well. So welcome, Guada. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today. Thank you, Jess. It's my pleasure. Uh, so you're the first person from math that I'm talking with, which is really exciting. Um, because, well, number one, I don't know a lot of people over in the math department, but being in STEM myself, math is always a big part of the discussion anytime we're talking about STEM education. And it's one of the pieces that I find that many of my students in general education have the most anxiety around. So um, that's, it's really interesting to me to talk with someone who made their way through mathematics. And I'm really curious to hear how you came to be a mathematician. So let's go back to the beginning and start at the beginning with your childhood, where did you grow up and what sort of got you interested in math? So um, I grew up in Argentina. I'm Argentinian. Uh, I lived there until I was 23 or 24 with an incursion to the US in the middle of high school towards the end. I grew up in a family with two parents, both of whom were first generation college people but I wasn't one. They were both medical doctors. Um, my father passed away when I was nine. So my recollection of him is through stories that I personally remember and my mother remembers and other people who loved him remember. He was a sort of bohemian personality who did theater and singing and playing piano in addition to medicine. And the story with him is that he was sort of a frustrated MD in the sense that he really wanted to be uh, an engineer, but his parents uh, thought he needed to be an MD. He was an only child. He pursued that. But within his profession, he found something that he really wanted to do, which was orthopedic surgery. So wow. he did his engineering within the medicine. My mother, yeah, my mother on the other end uh, really wanted always to be a biology teacher. Mm. And at the time, this meant that you had to get a medical doctor's degree to teach at the university. So that's what she did. So my mother is a surgeon by training that's never had a patient and always taught at the university doing research uh, in diabetics and diet with rats, mostly. Oh, wow. And She's retired now, but my mother pursued this career because it was her absolute passion. So it was a very good contrast between two parents doing essentially the same thing, but for very different reasons. And I mostly grew up with my mom. So my influence of being brought up essentially uh, by a female academic who was very accomplished and always was clear on what she loved doing and what she didn't love doing and had that demarcation clear in her head was quite uh, remarkable. And I think in part is what influenced me to go into think of an academic career early on. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to me that 
you could be trained as a surgeon if you don't really love or want to do surgery as a profession, because that seems to me like something that requires 100% of your effort and focus to become a surgeon. So if that's not your passion and where you're headed in life, that's a really lofty ambition to take on if that's not your ultimate goal. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I often reflect on the same thing. And I think it has to do sometimes, I believe my father was one of these people that found his way, you know, code, he probably felt he had mm, a sort of call to respond to his father who wanted him to do this. He probably wanted to be responsible and heed this call from his father for him to do this. At the same time, he had the ability to troubleshoot in a scenario which is not ideal to find something we love. And that's what he did. And that's, that's a skill that is important no matter what we do, because I think in any profession, there are aspects of it that we will not love. Uh, assuming we were lucky enough to choose a profession that we love. And so it's a good lesson. I think there's a, there's a remarkable silver lining or, or better than a silver lining in his story. He really found his place uh, within medicine in a way that satisfied him. Um, and uh, yes, I, the other thing that I was going to comment is on your second part of the question, which was how I, I became interested in mathematics. And I was thinking about this last night because we were, I was, you know, thinking about this interview and you mentioned you were might ask this question, which is kind of a standard question. And I've never been satisfied entirely by my answer to that question when I've been uh, asked that question. And I think it's because my interest in mathematics was rather circumstantial, I think. Um, I think mathematics was there at the right time in the right place at the time it came into my life. If it had been something different, if I had grown up in a different circumstance at a different time, I may be, you know, somebody who studied philosophy or religion or something completely different or law. Those are all things I considered at a time and mathematics just happened to reinsert itself in my life at critical moments in a way that um, Spike my passion, but like many other things could have as well. And that's what I chose to pursue. So I don't know that I can say more than that, but I think this is valuable because I think it calls to the attention that beyond the things that our society, our culture, our normative constructs might lead us to believe are important or worthy of pursuit, it's something inside and the circumstances that surround us that call us to do something specific. And heeding those things is important, so. Yeah, yeah, I relate to that a bit too because um, you know, I, I grew up with a, neither of my parents were college educated. They weren't into science or math or anything like that. And so I grew up listening to music and reading. My father was a musician and I wanted to be a performer. He was a performer and that's all I wanted to do was be on a stage somewhere, whether it was, you know, doing comedy or playing music or something, right? Acting. And so I went to college as an English major because I thought, well, I can write, you know, if I'm not going to be a, an actress or something, I can always write. And then I just sort of fell into geology and my father had just passed away the year before I switched my major. He had just passed away like two weeks before school got back into session. 
And so I went back my sophomore year, I was feeling really lost and sort of questioning life, you know, and what is it all about? He and I were really close and then he was, you know, gone. And geology was something new that was like, I was really curious about. And I started to feel this sort of spark of passion for something that I'd never thought I would be interested in. And there it was. So again, it was very circumstantial for me. If I wasn't in an intro geology class, like a gen ed class for geology, I might never have pursued it, you know, and it was, it ended up being a great decision. Yes. Yes. So that's just a fantastic message too for people that sometimes you're so, you know, you can think that you know exactly what path you're on and then something is calling to you and maybe it's worth checking it out, investigating a little bit. Yes, I think, you know, I think certainly is, is an excellent message and, or, or something for people to consider. Another thing that, I, that comes to mind though, as you're speaking is that Society can also have negative influences, right? If I look back upon the, the sort of family circumstances and messaging that I was getting at the time of these important decisions, they were messages implicitly perhaps and explicitly when they became explicit of support and um, the indication that I should pursue something I loved rather than something that I needed to prove myself on or something that was a way to make money or earn prestige or any of those things. Those things don't go very far into really helping us identify our passions and our possibilities. They're rather constraining. And I think the messages that I got from my mother was always, you, you need to do something you love, mm -hmm. which was sort of a burden for me because while my friends were thinking about uh, oh, how do I, how do I pursue this career or these studies that my parents want me to do? I was thinking, how do I figure out something I love? Yeah. How, how can I be sure? I love so many things. Yeah. What is this going to be? This is a high task, right? So it was a very different question. But I think, um, you know, that allowed me for possibilities of maneuvering that other people didn't have. And they are the possibilities that eventually make us robust and are not messages we're not countering messages of you can't do it this is hard this is not for you and so on yeah so, that, so that's an important that's part of the circumstances that i think needs to be surrounding somebody uh not just what is there but also what's not there so they can really cave uh um, move um, forward in their path yeah, it's one of the reasons I love teaching general education because the majority of my students are not on the science path or the STEM career path or college path. And sometimes you get those students that say, wow, I just, I didn't know any of this stuff and now I'm really into it. And maybe I'll do a minor in geosciences or maybe I want to major in it or maybe I want to go explore a biology class or a, you know, something else. And you realize that that it may not happen for all of your students, but even if it just happens for a few, that's exactly what's happening in that moment is maybe they're reconsidering or thinking about what else is out there, which is really exciting. Um, but you get make a good point too. It's also, it is kind of a burden. You know, I've had this conversation with friends of mine who say, you know, they, they don't live to work, they work to live. And some of them are totally okay with that. You know, I'm not passionate about my job, but I like my job and it gets the job done and it pays my bills. And then I, what I live for are the other things in my life. Yes. And then for some of us, we found a path that we were passionate about. And so we actually find joy 
in doing the work that we do, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And those are really two different experiences. And one is not necessarily better than the other, but there's this incredible, especially today with social media and all this stuff, there's this incredible pressure to be passionate about something, to be an expert at something, to be heard. And I think that that can be uh, very scary for a lot of young people. Yes, I think it goes counter sometimes to what our natural identities or what we identify with is. Uh, we are constantly affected, if not bombarded, by the implicit pressures of social media. We find less and less space unless we make it ourselves to be, to sink into ourselves and be alone mm. and sift through what really is part of us uh, in, in whatever way. And it's not just social media, right? Some people don't even have the possibility of doing, I, I mean, I guess the conversation that we're having is sort of grounded um, in a type of individual that has access to things that allow you to even enter these spaces and have these considerations. There's lots of people in the world, the majority of them, that don't even have this possibility. So I wanna, I wanna be cognizant um, right. of, that, of that lens that we're having in this conversation. Of course, I mean there is there is something incredibly privileged about even being able to to switch a major or take exploratory classes or make a decision about what you want to pursue. Some people just you know they don't even have the opportunity to go to college or you know get the job that they want. So I totally hear you there. Um, and so yeah, I didn't mean for that to sound like oh these poor people who have to make a decision no. about what they love, but it is. It, it is strangely, you know, it can be strangely scary to think like I have to find my passion. And like you said, what if you don't have one passion? Um, it, it is it is very interesting. But so I remember having you in um, a class that I was teaching about women in science. And one yes. of the things you talked about that I thought was so interesting was your sort of your relationship with mathematics and what it was about math that you found so compelling, I thought was so unique compared to what some people think of as mathematics. So would you talk a little bit about that? Okay, now I'm going, I don't know, I don't know that I remember what I said, but I can talk about it and you can prod in ways if you want, if you want to recall something specific. Well, I will just say that I remember you talking about math as being very creative. Oh, sure, sure. Which yes. I think a lot of people think of math and creativity is being very separate. And often with science, people think that they're very separate, but I, I think actually geology is very creative too. But for math, I think it's really interesting the way you talked about that. Yes. So yes, I do believe mathematics is quite creative or, you know, perhaps the better way to say this is it can be this. And perhaps there's a link between the idea of following one's passions in, in one's career versus just responding to some compliance or rule-based mechanism that is, that is linked between creativity and just rote. Mm -hmm. um, and, that's, and that perhaps is why I see it this way. If one pursues mathematics far enough, you know, mathematics is one of these disciplines that unlike other things, in, it's a language that you have to develop no matter where you start. There are symbols, there's things, there's rules, and in that sense, it's a language. And when people say, well, I'm not good at math, I don't understand math, ooh, you're good at math, 
great, you must be intelligent or smart. They really, it's an indication that what they've been exposed to is this elements of mathematics that are not necessarily mathematics per se. You know, if one thinks about anything that one learns in a, in a class, formulas and so on, somebody at some point came up with an idea, um, with a piece of reasoning, with an aha moment that eventually decanted into a series of numbers or an equation to communicate or summarize that idea. Yeah. The equation isn't the first thing. The rules aren't the first thing. But the way we teach mathematics makes those things appear as the first thing. Mm -hmm. And so the background, that creativity that originated those things and that it's still part of the discipline is highly imperceptible yeah. to anybody who doesn't do enough mathematics. And unfortunately, when these things are imperceptible, you might not develop any tendency to do more mathematics than the essential minimum, right? I mean, this is the idea of being passionate, loving something, being intrigued by something versus not, right? And so, so that's the link between the two. Mathematics can be very creative. Uh, it is very creative. It requires creativity, certainly if one writes a dissertation in mathematics or does or solves any new problem uh, in, in some sort of way. And that's fascinates me. I am an analytic thinker, you know, and I think when I think about other disciplines that I could have studied, the same, there's an analytic part, there's the thinking, the problem solving, the idea of restructuring and reconnecting things that is appealing to me. And the actual playground in which that happens for me happened to be mathematics, um, as we talked about before. But I think mathematics allows for that, just like many other disciplines allows for that. And it's certainly, if it hadn't had that creativity, I don't think I would have been drawn to it. So, um, you know, it's probably perhaps a connection with my own approach and, and the discipline that could have, might have happened with another discipline as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. Now, in my teaching, uh, of mathematics, and I haven't been teaching for the last few semesters because I've been serving as director for CUES and working with faculty across the university. But in my teaching of mathematics, I try to emphasize exactly this point of view. So the idea that mathematics is uh, creative. Mm -hmm. And that creativity can be generated when we do things which you're very familiar with collaborative um, spaces, communicating across students, sharing of ideas, sharing of patterns of thinking that are quite individual unless we expose them up front. And they don't necessarily fit the rules that uh, objectivize the content that we're teaching. And they get negotiated and exposed. And you can start to see the creativity of a discipline through seeing the creativity of the endeavor of understanding that discipline. And so in a lot of ways, there is uh, many ways of focusing mathematics in that way, which I think are really valuable because they're valuable for the students because they go beyond mathematics itself. They go just to anything that requires thinking and critical assessment of things, uh, no matter what the context is. Yeah, for sure. So why do you think it is that 
that people tend to be, and maybe this is a misconception now, but it's always sort of talked about how, you know, math is one of those subjects that people often say they're afraid of, or they think it's really difficult, or, oh, you're good at math, you must be really smart. Why do you think math, more than other subjects, is associated with this anxiety or fear or sort of put on this pedestal of you have to be really smart to be good at math? You know, what is it about math that makes it makes people feel that way about it? So, you know, this is an interesting question, and there's many, many different angles that one could explore in connection to this question. And, you know, there's many people that are experts on this from the social perspective point of view more than I am. Hmm. But I'm just going to take an anecdotal approach to answering this question and, and first emphasize that you know, when we ask this question, we live in the US and the US has a very specific cultural um, framing, uh, cultural norms to all these things that are different in other, in other countries. However, mathematics and science generally, globally, um, is a discipline that um, you know, not everybody pursues. There's issues connected to underrepresentation of women, which I've also been involved in and, and studied uh, and studying now. But generally speaking, and from the perception in the framework of US education, I think like many things, mathematics, just like the whole institutional construct of, of universities, there are norms that came at the time that mathematics became a subject mm -hmm. that sort of safeguarded as something essential, as something unquestionable in its value. Um, you know, in that sense, it's, it's a very particular thing because sometimes we need to justify whether we teach our kids particular aspects of curriculum in a variety of ways so that they can enter the curriculum. There's no justification ever required for having mathematics in the K-12 curriculum as early as possible. And if one steps back and thinks about how mysterious and contrived and the, the public perception, generally speaking, that the discipline itself, it's not something that adds value to their life from an individual perspective, this is a contradiction. Right. How is it that we don't need to justify this, yet people just implicitly adhere to it without having evidence, self-evidence of value for the discipline in any way? So I think it's sort of norm-oriented. I think if there's a perception that all STEM careers are um, somehow important or prestigious or um, associated with high levels of intelligence. And mathematics sort of is connected with that perspective as well. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that's one aspect of it. I think when something is so talked about, so loftified, I'm gonna make, I'm, make up that word <laughs> from the get-go, it creates certain reticence in people, certain, you know, wow, this is a big deal. How do I know that I can do it? Um, 
that is one part. The other part that I said before that this is just contrived when one doesn't present it as a created activity. And that's changing because with the common core standards, there, there's, a, there's a whole push and people are calling it the new math. And it's, it's the old math. It's the, it's the always math. Yeah. But you know, it hasn't been in the, in the forefront as it is yeah. uh, ever before. So you know, to people is the new math. Yeah. And it sort of takes the norm out of it and, and emphasizes the creativity, emphasizes that, well, there's many ways of thinking about this. And that just people that are used to rules and have gotten the rules don't know what to do with that, right? But it's, but it's really a, a more clear representation of math. And I think through that pathway, uh, if we find mathematics in what we do, rather than impose the mathematics pill in a specific, very normative, very clean way, then we might discover that the effect on people is quite different. But you know, this is how it's been permeated through culture so far. Yeah, for sure. I, I know as a parent, I struggle with what you call the new math because sometimes my kids will come to me with a math question and my instinct is to go back to the way I learned how to solve that problem, you know, which was very rote. What is the formula you need to use? How do, what is the order of operations? How do you break it down? And they'll say, well, that's not the way my teacher <laughs> wants me to do it. And I don't know the way the teacher wants them to do it, but I know there's value to what the teachers are doing. And it's just, you know, I haven't quite figured out how they're, they're implementing that, but I can appreciate it. And I think you're right. I think the piece you mentioned that was so interesting to me was this, what is the, the value to your life that's added to your life? I think students, it's easy for them to find value in say music or literature or writing or you know, even science, because there's something about it that's like, oh, I'm, I'm doing things that bring me joy, or I'm learning something that a fact or something that I can then share with another person. But with math, I think a lot of students, they look at it and say, well, I'm never going to have to do that in my real life. I'm never going to have to do that. So why, why do I have to learn it? And like you say, there's nothing behind it. It's just these numbers that you have to manipulate to come up with an answer. It's either right or wrong. And to me, I feel like that could generate a lot of anxiety too. There's a right or wrong answer in a math class most of the time, right? Whereas in an English class, there's lots of different ways you can write an essay, answer a question, interpret a book. Um, and so I think there's some fear around that. Like I either get it right or I get it wrong. Yes, yes. And it's interesting because there's a right or wrong answers to the math we know, which is the math we teach, which is the math in classrooms. But at one point, there wasn't a right or wrong. I mean, there was a right or wrong answer, but it wasn't known, right? I mean, everything we know, any formula that seems to work at one point was not in formula form. It right. was an idea. It, was, it did not have an answer. It, it entailed a creative analytical process that's summarized in the formula. So that's the essential piece to not forget, but it's absent. Right. whole rendition of the subject and the discipline. Yeah. yeah, 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 it's really fascinating. Um, so when you came to the United States, were you coming as a student? Were you doing graduate school? Yes, so I first came as an exchange student when I was in high school. Um, I was a junior in high school in Argentina and I came for a semester. I was in Washington State in Spokane. I went to Lewis and Clark High School mm. there. And then I went back to Argentina, finished um, high school, and then started a variety of college careers. Well, 
<laughs> I did. <laughs> I actually, so I had gone to a high school that was very math, physics, and chemistry intensive by choice. And I enjoyed it very much. But by the time I was done, I felt I knew nothing about other things, that my education had been very narrow and that that was irresponsible uh, in the civic sense. <laughs> and, and, and it was also, you know, didn't nurture me sufficiently in my breath as a human being. So I signed up for five, to start five different university careers, which in, in Argentina is possible university is free. And um, you also have some freedom to decide what you want to pursue for about a summer. Because once you choose something, if you change your mind, it's not like a major where there's general requirements. You gotta go back and lose the time invested in that career. Mm. So yes, indeed, I signed up to start engineering, architecture, law, medicine, and accounting. My gosh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to sit and think. And, you know, I, I was not going to start. But so I, I thought for a summer. And basically, I started just accounting, uh, which was, it, it was accounting, but it was really related to economics. So it was a, a career that um, I don't remember exactly why. I think some of my friends were doing that. And I think it was uh, engineering and, ar and architecture were too close to stuff I had done in, in high school. Mm -hmm. Medicine, I decided I'm not memorizing these tomes of uh, you know physiology and anatomy. No, thank you. Um, you know, I was yeah. very much in the creative orientation already. And accounting, which you know, I came to know it's actually not for me. And I, I'll tell the story of that briefly. Um, at the time represented a new set of things that were very interesting for me to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, marketing, economics, law were part of accounting without having to do just exclusively a law career. Mm -hmm. So I started that and I loved learning. I'm a learner, so I loved learning all these things. And it was fascinating, philosophy, law, civic law, commercial law, all this stuff was great. But then I started working for an accountant and I decided, nope, this will not work for me because there is no creativity here. <laughs> and so, you know, that, I guess that's another piece of evidence that math is creative because certainly I would not have followed it had it not been. Yeah. So, so at that time I, I left accounting. I think I had invested two, two and a half years on that. And I pulled back and I lost that time and started math. I knew I liked math. It was similar to what I had done before, but I knew I liked it. And I decided, okay, enough of the exploration. This I know will, um, you know, spike my analytical mind and sustain me um, in ways that are fundamental to me and I've come to know. So that's why I sort of chose that. But I, but this is not the question. I don't know what question. I think I ramified away. That's fine. I was just curious how you ended up in the US. Oh, yes. So at that time, it's, it's yes, this is related to your question. When I lost this two and a half years that I had invested in studying accounting in Argentina, I had always kept in touch with my host family in Spokane and they encouraged me to try to apply for uh, a scholarship to go to Whitworth College, which is now Whitworth University in Spokane. 
and finish because there would everything I had down in accounting in Argentina, all that stuff would count in the US, even though it didn't count in Argentina. Yeah. Of course, that entailed getting some sort of scholarship. My mother helped uh, with those studies, but I had you know, the biggest scholarship an international student could get for Whitworth College at the time, which is a liberal arts school. Um, and so I transferred and I finished in a year and a half uh, with a bachelor's of science in mathematics. Uh, with 95 transfer credits from Argentina wow. uh, for my work in economics and a little bit of math work. So this is how I ended uh, back in the U.S. at that time in a more substantive way. And um, I met somebody who I married, but who I'm not longer with at the time at Whitworth. And that's how I came to Tucson, in fact, through this person. And this is in part potentially why I'd stayed in the US. And the, in the idea that I could get a PhD in mathematics here and do something more meaningful than in Argentina with a PhD in mathematics, where Argentina is more, you know, still, if you have degrees in law and medicine and accounting, you can do things. Uh, but as far as, you, as far as being a mathematician, it's quite limited. Oh. In, in ways you can, I mean, don't get me wrong, you can do stuff, but there's a certain um, possibilities and opportunities to traditional academics in the US that are not the same yeah. um, in Argentina and other countries, so. Yeah, it's also interesting. I've talked with many women who come from other countries to the US and they talk about their education, their high school education as being much more narrow, you know, whether they're, they're coming from Europe or other, you know, other places where you kind of get slotted into either a more science and math type of, you know, field, or are you in a more like English or literature or something like that. And you having this desire or need to sort of expand your breadth of exposure and knowledge is something that I'm not sure a lot of people sort of come to that on their own in high school or after high school. Like I need more, you know, exposure to different things. Like I often hear students say, I wish I didn't have to take these courses because I know what I want to do. So I think in the U.S. it's sort of the opposite problem. And sure. one of the reasons that I'm a fan of, you know, general education or liberal arts programs at universities where students might come in saying, I know I want to be an engineer. Why do I have to take music or literature or something like that? And I see the value in it because it's kind of your last chance. Once you sort of decide what your career is, you may just be doing that all the time at some point. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. no, that's right. that's right. Yeah, so you think that it's beneficial. You see it as something positive for students to sort of, as we would say, be forced into this breadth <laughs> when they're in uh, undergraduate programs. Um, sure, I think, I think, you know, it's a good point because different upbringings, different cultural scenarios prepare us and call us for different things. I think being open to who we are and, you know, searching, knowing, having the balance of searching inside ourselves, if we have the privilege to do so, what we might want to do and informing that search by our circumstances as honestly as possible is certainly always useful. Um, but, you know, there's, there's so many circumstances that connect to that. They've, I don't know necessarily how I came to search for this breath. Perhaps it was, 
you know, in part of my mother push to find something that I was passionate about and knowing that I liked a variety of things and that I had not been exposed to that variety of things as much as I would have liked to. And that it was better to figure that out rather sooner than later, right? Um, so yeah, I don't know. And it's hard for me to sometimes I wonder had I not grown up in Argentina or had I come here earlier or not come here, who would I be and how would I be, right? Because there's, again, is, is the togetherness of who we are inside and the circumstances that surround us and the people that surround us. And that has an impact um, in ways that, you know, is really difficult to tease out because we have one circumstance at any given time and not alternative ones. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. Um, so I do want to make sure we have time to talk about the work you're doing, um, sort of advocating for Latinx students in STEM. And I want you to talk a bit about how you, you know, came to be involved with this at the U of A, but also maybe your broader thoughts or vision about this. I know that um, you know, with U of A being a uh, Hispanic serving institution, this is a big, you know, it's a big topic on people's minds is to think about how we do serve this community, especially here in Tucson, Arizona, where we're, you know, an, an hour from the border with Mexico. We have a lot of students here who are, you know, um, they speak English as a second language. They're Spanish speaking students. They, you know, they grew up in this culture that a lot of us like me, I don't understand because it's not my own culture. And yet I teach at a university that is serving this population and really needs to serve this population. So I'm really interested in your, um, you know, your thoughts about this and sort of what you're working on and where you're coming from here with this, uh, these initiatives to work towards more representation for Latinx students in STEM. So sure. So, you know, the first thing I want to say is that I came to focus on, on equity and servingness, meaning serving particular traditional, traditionally underrepresented populations. And this includes Latinx students. Some of my grants have had this focus. I'm part of the, you know, one of the co-founders of the STEM and HSI working groups and have worked very closely um, with Marla Franco and Vignesh and other people in since the U of since before the U of A became a Hispanic serving institution. So we sort of, um, you know, it was a variety of circumstances and opportunities in 2017 that led me to focus on on the HSI aspect of institutional transformation with other people connected to STEM. And prior to that particular HSI focus, because U of A became an HSI in 2018, I had a grant from the National Science Foundation to work in collaboration with Pima Community College. And this was part of the grant's conditions was that we needed to have Hispanic serving institutions. So, the first inception or my first connection with this aspect was through an opportunity presented by NSF where mathematics and the course that we developed as part of that grant was 
sort of position or envision by myself and my co-PI as something that would infuse equity in the transition from community college to high school. And the emphasis had to be in students transferring from a Hispanic serving community college and Pima Community College was one of them. So that was my first um, connection with uh, equity efforts uh, intentionally around STEM and intentionally around supporting students attending Hispanic serving institutions. Now to your question about um, the specific fo focus on US born students. So in that particular grant, and I'll fast forward to, to now, one of I, many things we learned, but one of the things I learned was that when we think of an institution as being Hispanic serving, that doesn't mean that all of the students at that institution are Hispanic students, right. or that you, or that you will impact mostly through whatever intervention you have a substantial number of Hispanic students. Mm -hmm. In fact, with the program that we had with Pima, we had difficulty um, having students participate from Hispanics and traditionally underrepresented backgrounds. The students that have um, the tendency or the exposure or the proactiveness to learn about grants opportunities and the kind of sort of above and beyond things that any intervention that entails a new course or a new opportunity um, offers tend not to be the marginalized students. Mm -hmm. The marginalized students are marginalized. And right. so they don't, we don't have, there's a basic inability to reach them when these opportunities come along. And the resulting effect is that they don't tend to be the ones to participate. At least this is what happened in the grant. And I've talked to enough people that this is, you know, um, this is well, well known. And, and, you know, it's well documented, it's documented in the recommendations we put out uh, for transforming STEM education at HSIs, which we did after a conference we had. So it's very interesting. And that perspective really, you know, once again, reinforce something that I learned with colleagues prior to, to in, in prior efforts, which was if we really want to focus on students who are marginalized, um, there are differences. There's not monolithic, a monolithic, you know, Latinx students and Hispanic students are non-monolithic. And plenty of people are writing about this more and more today. In particular, uh, and this goes back to my friends, my colleagues and friends who um, prior to that, um, I don't know, 10 years ago or more, started introducing me to the idea of equity efforts in mathematics in the US. And many of these friends are US born Hispanics, but I, or, or Latin, or US born Latinos, but not me. I am an import, you know, yeah. I, I am, a, a, you know, Latinx, but I'm an import. And that makes a huge difference, okay? There's a huge, there, there's huge differences in numbers. If, if one looks at Hispanics and Latinx faculty and one distinguishes between US born and not US born, there's stark differences. There's stark difference in engineering, there's stark difference in, 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 in a variety of fields, right? So there's that specific, so understanding 
uh, those differences, that they exist is important. And then understanding and doing the work for how to um, specifically enhance equity for US born Hispanics is a special thing. Because these populations are non-monolithic, it requires learning. Now that's not one, I don't identify with that, right? Like I said, I did not grow up in this country. So that entailed, uh, and still entails, really a large amount of humility and, and commitment to learning uh, on my part. To the outside, I might just appear automatically associated as somebody who understands this, but in fact, it's not the case. And so I guess there's, there's an intentionality, a want for me to really think equity about equity in a broad sense and really identify what are the marginalized groups that I can affect uh, from where I am at this time with what I'm doing. And those, um, those are um, you know, not just students attending Hispanic serving institutions and the specific focus that I'd like to have in the US born students, um, but also uh, you know, veteran students, I've done some work with veteran students, that's another marginalized population within colleges in, in start ways. Um, and also uh, women in STEM, that I've done some work um, globally with groups who are measuring the gender gap in science and mathematics. And so equity, I think, is what is a theme here. And just identifying groups that are close to my heart or groups that I can directly affect, um, you know, most meaningfully, given what I do right now and uh, what I can access and offer right now. Yeah, that's such an interesting and important way to approach it. I, I've, I have had similar experiences where being a woman in STEM, that's close to my heart. And I feel like, well, I have something to offer there. You know, I can, I can mentor young women in my department or at the university, or I can, you know, whatever it might be, try to encourage women in my class to, you know, pursue things that they're passionate about. Um, but again, I mean, as we know, perhaps more than we do with, with the Latinx population, we, we know that women are not monolithic, and yet we still think of women's issues very monolithically. Um, there's a lot of assumptions that sometimes we make about why women are doing or not doing the things that they're doing in education. And I have found out on many occasions that I was wrong in making those assumptions about, you know, why a woman might not choose geosciences or might not choose to go into mathematics. And I'm sure it's, you know, you're having the same discoveries with Latinx students. Um, and we could say the same for veteran students. We could say the same for African-American students and, you know, all of the marginalized populations that we're dealing with that we, we want to help and make a difference for, but we're not always situated to do it in a way that makes that really makes an impact for them, right? From their perspective, um, it's a struggle. It's you know you you can have the best of intentions and and not necessarily be doing what you think you're doing, or what you're yeah. trying to do, and that's that's hard. Yes, you know I want to I want to say because what you're saying makes me think of an in, an important um, distinction or. In the, in the framing that we can have whenever we see ourselves as contributing to some aspect of equity or um, what we might view as traditionally 
underrepresented or marginalized populations. And is it's it's really first of all the perspective and I, and I've written about this the idea that we should think from as from an assets and not a deficit perspective. So what seems to be prominent at the in the institutional culture of universities when addressing these problems especially now that equity and diversity and inclusion are commodified and well talked about uh, and you know in in a way um, they don't the conversations around that are not always grounded in in as much knowledge as what they should have um, there's the the asset versus deficit perspective that is the approach that we take uh, when we look at the at students or populations or or that we want to help as something that they lack in the deficit perspective and that's what tends to be prominent these students are not doing what institutionally we're calling them to do and therefore there's something deficient on the end versus who are the students what do they bring how what are these assets and how is it that we're not delivering an experience that taps into those mm -hmm. so that's the perspective so i want to emphasize that is the perspective that is essential to have when we talk about equity yeah. um, it's not equity if one doesn't have, I think, that type of perspective. It doesn't lead to equity efforts that are grounded in sustainable transformation. Um, so that difference is important. The other difference is we, I frame this as our institutional responsibility. Mm -hmm. So there's the institutional side and there's the student side. It's not that the students need to be doing something different. It's not even that the students need to be showing their assets. It's that the institution has the responsibility, the power, the name, the prestige to reach out and figure out what is to look in and reach out and figure out what we need to change. So, this is institutional transformation centered rather than changes on the student side and the individual side. And this is also, um, you know, most productive when centered through assets. So those are the two things that I, I think it's important to say. Yeah, I agree with you. I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there resistance to that viewpoint sometimes? Because I would imagine for some, especially in academia, who have maybe a more, you know, traditional view of what it means to be in academia, right, or to, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be careful with how I word this, but it could be an elitist point of view, right? I just wonder if there's, if there's pushback sometimes about that idea because, uh, you know, there's a, there's a standard or something, right? So we have to have certain academic standards and if there are deficiencies that's that's what we need to target we need to deal with those deficiencies and i would imagine if i was a student in one of these you know quote unquote marginalized groups 
and I was being approached based on my deficits, what needs to be fixed about me, there, it, it wouldn't be very welcoming either, any of these programs, right? To, to sort of help, uh, how would you feel like you were really being included in the change that's being proposed? And so I wonder if there's, you know, if you've encountered any sort of issues with this, this perspective of coming at it more as a looking inward towards the assets that these, these different groups of students bring. So these are difficult, I mean, okay, so several, several things connected to what you say. Certainly, I think it's difficult for an institution to, um, you know, I think we've made progress. I think we understand that, you know, thinking of what the institution can do rather than what the student can do and thinking about what the students bring rather than what the students lack are not things that we will disagree. And I, I think at all levels, institutionally speaking, I think people would agree with that. Now, agreeing with something and making it happen are starkly different things. Yeah. And in the middle of those two things is knowledge and empathy. Mm -hmm. And there's a link between the two. If you have empathy alone, but it's not knowledge-based, if you don't know the populations, if you don't know these realities, if you don't know your institution, if you haven't introspected about the stagnation of the institutional norms in the place that you uh, guide or you inhabit, then you cannot. Empathy is highly insufficient, mm -hmm. okay? If you have knowledge, but you don't have empathy, that's also highly insufficient. So there's a link between the two that needs to mediate the idea, the, the, the pathway between I agree with this perspective and I'm actually doing something about it. And that's quite difficult. Um, it's difficult globally in the science community, but from the perspective of you know, US institutions and US universities, it's difficult but it's well, it's understood, right? I mean, it's, there's, there's a whole trajectory. I just wrote an article, not just wrote, I, in, in, I think it came out in June or, or July for the conversation where I talk about um, assessment and uh, California's uh, change to remove the SATs from entrance exams. And I go all the way back to um, you know, from the exam all the way back to the institutional, the academy in the US. And the fact that when universities were created, the norms were different. Yeah. The people were different. Mm -hmm. It was a highly white population with highly European norms. And they essentially have not changed. They remain. So here's the, here's the little cartoon for imagining what can be done or what needs to be done. If we were now the population that we are, the diverse population in the US that we are today, but we went back a hundred years and that was the population or, or however many years, that was the population when higher education was created. Okay, what would come out would be starkly different as to what we have today. Right. And that is 
where that is the approach. So transformation doesn't mean mean fixing fixing what we have today, you know, in order to accommodate. Transformation means imagining what we would have today if the circumstances were as they are. Yeah. Who would be involved and um, who would have the power <laughs> would be completely different and the outcome would be completely different. Yeah. So, so that is why it's difficult. And this is, I mean, and we can take any experience in our own lives, you know, anybody can uh, from whatever position of privilege. Yeah. When we know something and we encounter something completely different, if we went to a completely different country in Asia or Africa, if that's not where we come from, and we were pushed into this norm, those norms and made to adapt, we would have a difficult time. It's yeah. just we don't identify with it. And that's the perspective that is so elusive to us because we are in the environments that we've always identified with. Right. It's the same with K-12 education. And I think it's the same with, for women. And it's this, you know, it's, it's, yes. it, this is a pervasive problem. Yes. <laughs> it is yes. pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that you agreed to chat with me today and that you're doing the work that you do because we need people like you who are passionate about these issues and who have the knowledge and the empathy. Um, and like I was telling you at the beginning, I don't know where you get the energy to do all of this. I think you're, uh, you're just amazing and I appreciate the work that you do so much here at U of A and beyond. Thank you, Jess. I think it's awesome you're doing this podcast and thank you for inviting me and thank you for helping, you know, give uh, science and university education and women a public face that is informal and powerful and genuine from from what you do. I mean, I think that's also absolutely important and awesome. And I'm so glad you're doing this and that I could be part of it. Well, thanks again. It was really nice to chat with you. Thank you. All right, you have a wonderful holiday. Yeah, you too.